This is the Annex, a sociology podcast. I'm Joseph Cohen from Queens College. Today, we're going to talk about ivermectin, social archive, and Mexico City with two of my favorite past guests, Philip Cohen from the University of Maryland College Park and J.P. Pardo Guerra from the University of California at San Diego. Crazy science, lots of intrigue. There's a lot coming up. Stay tuned. This episode was recorded on February 15th, 2022. We are here with Philip Cohen from the University of Maryland. Philip, welcome. Hey, how are you? And J.P. Pardo Guerra from UC San Diego, fresh off a new book. Thank you. Yes, yes. Well, it's still in press, but it will be with us as soon as Long Beach has dealt with the issues with containers. Mm. <laughs> Sometime next year, then. Maybe, maybe. next decade. Your book is at Knock sea. on wood. <laughs> I just hope it's not lost at sea because that would be bad. Yeah. Yeah. And also, we're here with my colleague from Queen's College, Jason Tuga, who is an English professor and just wanted to join in on this story when I was talking about it during production. Welcome, Jason. It's great to have you on this Yeah, podcast. thanks for having me. I'm really looking forward to hearing the details of this story. So this is a story that I think just has to be told in a linear way, because like the story just starts great and just escalates from there. So Soch Archive and professors Cohen and Pardo Guerra have been embroiled in an international scandal about cancel culture, boundary setting in science and gatekeeping and all of those things that people hate about elitist science and the mainstream media, I guess is how you've been roped in. Concretely, what's happened is that a professor in Mexico City ran a research project on the effectiveness of ivermectin and published it in the Open Sociology Research Paper Archive, Soch Archive, which Philip Cohen is director of. And it was discovered by JP, who brought it up on Twitter. Let's start with the study, okay? Can you tell us what was the study claiming and what was the experiment that underwrites the claims? Uh, Philip, do you want to start on that? Or, or I guess uh, JP, well, yeah, who wants JP, to start? JP, why don't you tell us? JP, you should start. we got to start with the ivermectin program, I guess. It goes back before yeah. the study. Social Archive already knew about the study and already had information about this being problematic and discussion since 2021. So the steering committee knew that there was something weird about this super downloaded paper. It had 10,000 downloads at the time, I mm -hmm. think. And I just raised concerns about why don't we retract this and ban the authors for life from the platform. <laughs> How many downloads does a paper typically get? So there was an ivermectin paper on Social Archive that was getting 10,000. What's typical for well, Social Well, it's Archive? funny because Social Archive is a low budget operation. I'm the director, unpaid. We have zero staff. So what we have is yeah. like a handful of volunteers who are academics around the world. And we vet the papers when they come in. And our question about them when they come in is, is this research? Is it plausibly correctly categorized and is the author identified? So we're very low level. There's no quality control in our review. That's our mission. But anyway, so it must have been like November, December, I got an annual report from our platform host, the Center for Open Science, and it just listed the top URLs on the platform. I don't normally study the metrics and downloads and stuff. And the most clicked on paper of the 12 months ending last June, June 21, okay. <laughs> was this paper. It was only uploaded in May. So it was like, it was only up there for one out of the 12 months and it was the most viewed thing on our platform. And I hadn't even seen it. I mean, it was approved by one of our other moderators, not to pass the buck, but each 
you know, every day we have a different person on shift and whatever papers come in, we look them over, we approve them. That's when we looked at it. And because it was ivermectin, I was like, okay, well, I've been following enough to follow ivermectin. Um, and then we did sort of put a statement of concern online in December. And that's what Juan Pablo was referring to. But we should tell them about the program, the ivermectin program and stuff. Do you want to do that? Can I ask two questions as an outsider, just so that we get it on tape? One, are these papers published elsewhere as well or not? Okay. Yeah. So what is Social Archive? I mean, we're on Archive of Research and the papers that we host can appear somebody else, somewhere else, but they don't have to. So a lot of them are preprints and I'm using air quotes, meaning that they are subsequently printed somewhere else. A lot of them are never published somewhere else. There's preprints forever. (laughs) Uh I mean, some of them are actually postprints. Like if you publish an article in a journal that's paywalled and you want to be able to share a copy, you might put like the unformatted version on social archives. So you have a link to share. So it's really just a platform for sharing research in all forms and stages. But the basic criteria is it's a paper. It is something to do with the areas of research that we cover, social science, social humanities, education, and law. Okay. So you won't publish a personal reflection essay, but the purpose is, is if it looks kind of like research, you'll make it available for the scientific community to review and discuss and eventually get to peer review. But Social Archive is not peer review. And so we have certain things on the platform that let people do, like there's an annotation, you can comment on them. There's a plot it button. You can highlight something as, yes, I think this is good. But it's really, it's openness is the the watchword. But we do have some screening criteria. You know, it has to be what we say scholarly or scholarly engaged. It can be a book review of a scholarly book, or it can be a research project that is in one of the areas that we cover. My other question is, do you remember what the difference was in numbers between that paper and number two? No, I don't. It's actually what I meant to say when I said we're a low budget operation. I can't even like press a button and get that information. But I can tell you, definitely in the top 1% of our papers of all time. Right. All right. So JP, tell us the backstory. Set this up for us. So the benefit of Hinsight, now we have a better idea of what happened. And it starts with the government of Mexico City becoming very concerned about the potential rise in cases in December of 2020. And because there were no vaccines in the horizon in September, when they decided to plan this intervention, they chose to go with this untested, unverified, completely ambiguous approach, providing people with positive tests with a little kit that contained ivermectin, aspirin, paracetamol, a sort of oxygen measuring thingy, and some other pamphlets and stuff. And this was decided by the local Ministry of Health in consultation with some unknown experts and a bunch of unreviewed papers that they found online. So they did their research and using (laughs) their research, they justified giving 200,000 people these kits with ivermectin. And they started doing this in January of 2021, and it went all the way up to September of 2021, if I'm not wrong. And... When it was, it became public that they were doing this, that they were providing ivermectin and that this was a questionable, unproved treatment that actually went against the recommendations of the federal government at the time. They ran this study, which is using all the data that they had collected, if you can call it data. Well, it is data. It's just really bad data. 
where they used matching techniques to compare people before and after the treatment to see if there was efficacy in ivermectin. They found something like a 70% reduction in hospitalization because of the use of ivermectin. And they wrote it up as a paper where they put were all the causal claims on ivermectin, even though the kid had a bunch of stuff. And anyone in an introductory class to stats would know that that is completely impossible to say based on that data. But they published this or they sent it to Soak Archive, which is where it then started circulating throughout the internet. And I only discovered this, what was it, like two weeks ago when a local yeah. newspaper published something about the cost of this intervention. So what initiated the controversy in Mexico, at least, was that they were spending money on ivermectin, not the fact that they were giving ivermectin to people, which I find more shocking. <laughs> and yeah. when I read that report, I initially didn't pay enough attention. But when I went back and saw that the paper that they were using was on Stoch Archive, I felt personally attacked um, yeah so yeah <laughs> first of all people poo poo gatekeeping and boundary setting but it does play an important function you know during the pre-show we were talking about the uh, so-called squared controversy that happened a couple years ago and that was where somebody sent a bunch of nonsense papers to uh, a variety of social science and cultural studies journals just with really outlandish but sociology rejected all of them and we were quite happy about that because the disciplines that did publish that research were embarrassed because nonsense had passed peer review and so that was a moment where we were very happy that someone was there policing the discipline and saying you shouldn't be doing this this isn't right whatever and you kind of perform the same function in that in, in a way like to prevent embarrassment and a devaluation of the discipline so i think it was an amazing thing so you saw it and you got on twitter yeah. what did you say and what was the immediate so follow? i think that what i requested was for the paper to be withdrawn and the authors to be banned i was going to request something a little bit more intense but decided to control <laughs> myself which is rare of me on twitter but i basically asked for that because they had first not declared their conflicts of interest so these were government employees of the agencies that coordinated this intervention, justifying the intervention with this paper. The paper was featured on the website of the local health department as, oh, this is this is proof that ivermectin works. Oh. So they didn't declare that small little detail of conflict of interest. And then they also never conducted any form of informed consent with the participants, which is also really dubious, in addition to the fact that all these statistical claims are crap and are really dangerous if they're in the public sphere, because they lead to overconfidence on a treatment that probably doesn't work and that can cause all these unknown consequences throughout uh, the world if people start using this paper as a way of defending their their actions. So, so those were like the key things. And the tweet went semi-viral, which was great. And of course, it also triggered the withdrawal of the paper. Yeah, let's get to that because I want to talk about the steering committee. So to review where we are so far, the city of Mexico, its local government was hit with a, a wave of COVID and decided to distribute everything but the kitchen sink to people, or at least some painkillers, a temperature taker and some ivermectin, which at the time the federal scientists said was not an effective treatment, but somebody decided to distribute it. Then they looked at the data 
and they discerned through their own analyses that it it worked and i guess it was like exculpatory evidence for the the government so they posted on all these open archives and then publish on their own communications that there's these new scientific findings coming out that uh, get the government off the hook saying that they actually helped people by giving them ivermectin and you saw this there was there was complaints about it was costing too much and you saw this and said wait you gave people ivermectin did did they know like you, you're running a clinical drug trial basically and it went to philip and the steering committee what happens there like how does the steering committee work what's the governance process bring us behind the uh, scenes well it's a good question you ask about gatekeeping and part of the, the mexico city officials who did this what they took advantage of was ambiguity about what the platform is yeah. right so we'll tell anybody who asks us that if your work is on social archive that does not mean it's good it's a weird thing to say about your own product that like that's our brand our brand is it might not be good. Yeah. <laughs> so, and, you know, that's our mission. And so just to jump ahead for a second, when we ended up withdrawing it, it became American editorial board retracts or rejects this paper as if it was like a journal retracting an article. And I wanted to say like, yes, we did, but it's not like we ever peer reviewed it. Yeah. So, this, so I'm the director, I'm just on the faculty here and the steering committee, we just consult each other when there are decisions to be made, basically. And usually the platform just runs. We don't have a lot of policy stuff that comes up, but this came up and we had considered it in the first place before Juan Pablo's tweet about it. We had already posted a thing just to clarify some of the stuff on here is bad. What does it mean if it's on here? And we tell people it's best practices to put to post your work and share it openly, but it doesn't mean that everything that's shared is good. Yeah. So it is difficult and it's hard for the public to understand this function a little and what we would call the scholarly communication ecosystem is changing rapidly. So, and gatekeeping is a big part of that. But one of the things that we've gotten to is this point where peer review is not about preventing research from seeing the light of day. It's about assessing its quality and validity. So journals and peer review can't stop people from saying words on the internet, but all we can do is try to tell people if it's good, if it's voracious or whatever veracitous. Good. So I kind of proposed to the steering committee for the four possible reasons that like we never withdrew a paper before over the author without, you know, the, the authors have withdrawn their own papers, but we never did it before. So I said, look, we don't have a policy, but I can think of four reasons why we might want to withdraw this paper that we can give and then have to work up a policy. Number one, it's part of a misinformation campaign. So however wrong it is, and there's lots of stuff on our platform probably that's wrong, this one is being used to spread misinformation, which we have to take a do no harm approach here. This seems to actually be part of a worldwide campaign to spread this misinformation, which is politically about big pharma and in the case of Mexico about imperialism and like stuff, which is, it's not a really about ivermectin, it's about this campaign. So that was number one. Number two, the program itself, the really tricky thing about research ethics in this case is if it was a study, giving ivermectin to people was research, it was unethical research right. because they didn't go through the protocols of, of a trial. If it was medicine that they were giving people, it was unethical medicine because it was unproven, right? So, so the World Health Organization and everybody else is saying like, if you want to study ivermectin, it's okay. It's pretty safe drug. You can study it in a controlled clinical way, but you can't just go willy nilly giving it to people. <laughs> so they had to kind of choose, are we doing an unethical study or are we doing an unethical medical intervention, public health intervention? And they ended up choosing 
to go with the intervention. They said at the time it was justified. So we didn't need to tell people it was experimental because it was not an experiment. Um, So we said, okay, well, in that case, it was part of an unethical program. And the researchers are part of that program. They're not separate. Right. So like Juan Pablo said, it's not like it's not like some separate outside researcher studying this data. It was their data from their program. And they they were kind of writing this paper as if their their careers depended on it. It's like as opposed to an archivist who goes to like a place where there was a genocide and saw what happened after the fact. But the ethical thing is tricky. If I dig a hole and I want to study if people falling in holes is bad. Right. If I dig a hole and then I put a camera there and I measure it, that's unethical research. But if Juan Pablo digs a hole and and I put a camera there and study people falling into the hole, I'm not doing unethical research. I'm studying a problem in society, which is people falling into holes. Right. But it's a little tricky. You can't you can't be both people and claim that you're doing two separate things. We did this thing and then totally separate from that. We studied this data. Right. Like try to tell your IRB, if you're a researcher, try to tell them we're going to generate data. Then we're going to switch hats and we're going to analyze this anonymized data that we had nothing to do with. It's just data. Well, it sounds like you, the stuff of a, a racketeering trial or something, <laughs> something like that. Right. You know, it is. it's like shady accounting. Right. You're going to move the money from one account yeah. to another. There are two other reasons. One, the conflict of interest issue, which is they did list their affiliations in the title, but they didn't say like, this is our program. And we have a conflict of interest checkbox that they did not. You're supposed to specify clearly, you know, if you have an interest. Um, And then the fourth thing is it really was medical research and we don't do medical research. Um, And so we never, it's our fault. We never should have accepted it because, but the tricky thing is we do accept public health research. So if you did a program to hand out electric blankets in the wintertime, you could put that paper on social archive. But if you're talking about a drug, that's medical research. So they described it as a public health program, but then their, their results were all like ivermectin works. This shows ivermectin works. We should have caught that, that disjuncture there, that it was that they were making medical claims off of a public health style research project. So we had a bunch of reasons to reject it. And we didn't say this is, we're doing this because it's poor quality. But we did say it's poor quality. And we wanted to be clear about that. Like, we do also think this is garbage research. How many authors were there on the paper and what were their affiliations? I think it was seven authors or something like that. So, and it was like this motley crew of weird individuals from agencies across Mexico City. So the lead author is the guy in charge of this new agency called the the Agency for Digital Innovation which is innovative research. They're they're like the people who oversee (laughs) streets and digital infrastructures in Mexico City, which doesn't Mm. make a lot of sense if you're in the health world. And then three of the authors were people associated to that agency. And then two more were folks from the health side of Mexico City's government. So it was about five, seven authors from most agencies. Altogether seven. I think wasn't one the Minister of Health yeah. of Mexico City. Yeah. So the Minister of Health was also a part of one of the authors. Yeah. I mean, the thing about this new agency and this guy, Marino, is they sort of have their images like it's, he's a data scientist, sort of. And like, we're going to be efficient and transparent. We're going to use data and improve mm-hmm. government. That's that's like my extent of knowledge about Mexico City government. That this, But um, there was a seventh author, but they're down to six now because the seventh author has come out and said he apologizes, he retracts his share of it. And he was the guy doing the data analysis. <laughs> um, 
<laughs> and and now he said on his Twitter feed, look, this was p-hacking. This was not ethical research. And I'm sorry. And I got fired. He got mm-hmm. fired before this scandal broke. And so does that discredit him or discredit them? You know, it's okay. unclear. But, uh, I have anyway, a question so, about the data yeah. science part. Nothing in that kit sounds like it would reduce hospitalizations by 70%. So where are they getting that number? Well, the tricky thing is the kit may have changed a little. Some of them had zithromycin also, which would not reduce hospitalizations by itself, antibiotic, unless you got pneumonia that became bacterial from COVID, which I'm not sure, maybe some people with COVID end up needing antibiotics. I don't know. You know, this was the issue of the before and after part of the design. So in December, 2020, the wave was crashing through Mexico City and hospitalization rates were rising. And right at the peak, the end of December, they started giving out these kits and then the hospitalization rate started to fall, not because of the kits. That that wave was already cresting when they started the program. So they had this problem where all their data about the program, so I guess they recorded the names of the people that they gave the kits to. And subsequently, they also had some follow-up where some people got a call from Locatel, which I guess is a public agency or a contractor that did some follow-up calls. So they had a few different ways to kind of ask this question, did the kit help? Mm. They chose Mm. as their outcome measure, were you ever hospitalized? And so the easy thing to say is, well, because it was declining, the people in December were more likely to be hospitalized than the people after. But even after, there is a slightly lower rate of hospitalization among the people who got the kit and the people who didn't. And so it could be, and this is stuff you'd want to study, who decided to get the kit. It wasn't random. So it's you had to go to a street kiosk and get tested there and take the kit. It could be that the kit did change their behavior in some way. Maybe it made them feel safer about staying home and instead of going to the hospital. Maybe the pulse oximeter that they gave had some role. It is theoretically possible that taking the ivermectin made a difference. It's just so far down the list of possible explanations that the idea that this was a study that showed the effectiveness of ivermectin is really wrong. I mean, the other thing about the context is there was a wave of ivermectin craze in Latin America at the time. So in Peru and in Brazil, there were a few other programs of people who were doing this. And it's an anti-parasitic. And in tropical areas, like people had a lot of experience taking this drug and it was cheap and off patent and not dangerous. But the problem was in the, at the very beginning of the pandemic, the approach of scientists was we're going to throw every chemical we have on the shelf in a dish and sprinkle COVID, SARS-CoV-2 virus particles in there and see what happens and try to find something that works, which is a very reasonable thing to do with a brand new pathogen. And they found that, you know, it's sort of like Trump and the bleach. They found that, wow, look, the virus died in the dish with the ivermectin in it at a concentration that's 100 times greater than you could ever get by taking ivermectin at a safe dose. But they reported it in the literature. And then people were then people went to the races with it and said, oh, OK, well, we are going to take ivermectin. But the people who take ivermectin 100 times what you're supposed to take are the people who are showing up at emergency rooms in Texas having gotten it from the vet. But also, can I add just because I'm a stats fan as well. So in a typical study, what you do is you would assemble a group of people and you give a random selection of them the drug and you'd give them a random selection, not the drug. And the reason that you do that is because participating in the study could be a factor if they say, if they gave you the bag and they said, you don't have to come to the hospital unless your oxygen rate goes below 90. Well, then people who are panicking won't show up because they'll have a pulse oximeter. 
And then you want to have both the control group and the treatment group experiencing the same thing in case of history, like Philip says. If something changes in the environment and COVID comes crashing down, you wanna be able to see a difference between the people who you gave the drug to and the comparable group who should be the same demographic makeup or chosen through the same selections. There's just, the basic problem is, is you don't know if it was the drug or some other aspect of participating in the study or just the passage of time. And you don't know if you gave the drug to a representative sample of people and you don't know about the people who didn't get yeah. the drug. Could be that those are the type of people who ignore their health until they panic at the last. So there's a million factors. So it's a very irregular study. It's not a, a regular design, for, especially for a pharmaceutical yeah. trial. You right. know? <laughs> it wouldn't be crazy for some public health intervention. If you were measuring the effect of putting a billboard up on the highway that says, put your baby on its back to sleep. Like we do other kinds of public health campaigns, studying them in a totally different way. Put the billboards up in one town, but not in another town. And now we're going to study the SIDS rate, the rate of sudden infant death. You know, you could do that. But, but it's also the stakes are different yeah. because the cost of being wrong in a pharmaceutical experiment is much bigger than a billboard. So we have very different standards of evidence that we hold. It's, it's interesting also that the matching, one of the things that happened. So one of the translation issues I think has been calling Social Archive a journal and me an editor and the steering committee, an editorial committee. There's, there's some of that. And I don't know, maybe one probably can say like how much of this is actually literally translation like revista versus what are they calling this? I don't know what they call it. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're like, they're confusing the terms quite a bit. So in interviews that I gave with Mexican radio, they would think that this was a peer reviewed journal and that the decision to retract it was from an editorial board. And I had to tell them, no, these are completely unreviewed works. And as such, there has been no peer review. This is just a platform for communicating open science. And that's it. It's just that. It's a platform for communication. And that's what they were doing. They were abusing a platform for communication. Yeah. Like Spotify. <laughs> <laughs> So let's follow up this story. Let's continue this story. with One thing about oh, that sorry. study design, let me just say about the study design, the political controversy that followed, they called it a quasi-experimental paper, which really is interesting because in terms of the statistical analysis, I think it was quasi-experimental. Yeah. It's sort of like we sprinkled, we threw water out the window on the west side of the building. We didn't throw it out the east side. Now we measure the rate of car accidents on the two sides. It's quasi-experimental. So they did this matching thing of like, oh, we'll take a 50-year-old man with my moderate symptoms who got the drug, and then we'll compare him to a 50-year-old man with moderate symptoms who didn't get the drug three weeks earlier. And so they matched them all up and then compared a simulated case group and mm -hmm. control group, which again, can be a legit way to do the research. And you would call it a quasi-experiment, but the people who are concerned about the ethics are like, wait a second, you did a, was it experiment or not? Like, were you experimenting on the citizens of Mexico by giving them an unproven drug? That's... The political controversy, I think, is quite interesting and in one public yeah. There's more about it than I do. <laughs> Tell us, JP, what happened? Because you're our you're our line into the, the Spanish speaking media and all the exchanges that we might not be able to grasp the full nuance. So of. the context for this is that the mayor of Mexico City is the likely front runner for the next presidential elections. So she is like the right hand of the president and is very likely to be the next president. And of course, having headlines that say the government experimented with people was not something that is <laughs> adequate in these, in these moments. 
of great political uncertainty. And this really blew up. I mean, it was covered by all the local news, a few national outlets, and they were framing this as an experiment, as a deliberate experiment, which was incorrect. It wasn't an experiment. It was a poorly planned intervention with some experimental aspirations, perhaps. And it became a really contentious point. So one of the co-authors, Marino, the main author, for example, had this request for Social Archive to reinstate the article because this was a colonial action that went <laughs> against the principles of science. He's not actually a scientist, but let's just leave that aside for a second. And they really tried to defend and push the idea that this was done in a very rational way with a little committee that they haven't still revealed the composition of back in 2020 that included an Argentinian ivermectin researcher, which of course is the most unbiased way of producing findings you can think of. <laughs> and it did lead to a bunch of questions about the capacity of the mayor of Mexico City to run things. I mean, there's still a lot of things that are coming out and that are politically charged. This was, for example, taken by one of the key news persons that is an opposer of the current government as an argument for why the president sucks. The president was not involved in this in any way, but his party was, so they completely politicized this discussion. But there again, there's still evidence coming up that can potentially have all these political repercussions, which are all about destabilizing the party in power right now in Mexico. Yeah, some people want them to go to jail. I mean, it's Tuskegee, it's Mengele, it, it's abuse of power, it's wasting money. It's It escalated quite a bit. And some of it was... Like the president said, this is basically a campaign by the opposition. Um, and <laughs> it appears the opposition is pretty happy to talk about it, but it's kind of is messing up the potential to have like a real conversation about this program and the ethics and the research and stuff. Is It's pretty well implicated in the politics. I would like to ask you directly, Philip, as a media outlet, do you have plans to subvert the Mexican government in well, any way? Um, no, but, but, and, you know, and actually the funny thing is, like, I, it's really, really not my aspiration to, to meddle in the affairs of any government. I don't go there like there's lots of governments have lots of policies that I don't like all around the world. And it's really not my job to complain about them. Like I complain about Israel, like I have personal connection. I complain about Israel. I complain about things where the United States is involved, but I'm not trying to do that because I actually think it's like a pretty serious, like, I don't want to do that. Um, you don't want to meddle in the Mexican election. If I was an expert in, like I've written, I've done a little research on China, like I'll say something about China, but it's just not my job. But I think this issue of the, the political use and the politics of science gatekeeping is, is really a big one. And there's no getting around the, the serious implications of it. And I think it is interesting. And I think it added fuel to the fire, Juan Pablo, that my Americanness and the, the fact that it was an American platform, on one side, it was fetishizing the American American scientists as being the real scientists, like, oh, this American journal um, retracted this paper. So ha ha, you're terrible scientists, Mexico scientists, or you're embarrassing Mexico. There was all that. On the other hand, there was the colonialist, your colonialists. There's not a lot of upside to either one of those, to either one of those lines of argument. 
JP, you got mixed up in quite a bit. What what came your way as a result of all uh, this? It was like a week of lost productivity <laughs> because I was mostly doing radio and TV shows, uh, which was interesting, I guess. I mean, the thing is, this was also happening. So the other thing that motivated me is that this is happening during an administration that is being overly interventionist with the scientific community in Mexico. So science in Mexico is going through a very difficult moment because of certain policies that the government has adopted. So they, they've politicized payment to scientists, they've politicized the relationship between the state and particular institutions. And this was another example of the current administration politicizing science in very specific ways. So for example, the rumors that I've gotten, which did circulate also during that those interviews last <laughs> week, are that they did submit this paper to other repositories. So they did submit it to MedArchive. It was rejected by MedArchive. And there's another rumor that is still to be confirmed that a version of the paper with the mayor of Mexico City as a co-author was sent to The Lancet where it was rejected. What is an engineer doing sending a paper on ivermectin to the Lancet is beyond me. I think that's not in her job description, but of course it was done with certain political ends, which is to say, look, we cured COVID, we walk on water, look at us, we are fantastic. So it's been a really weird moment because this has now become one of the key elements in the in criticisms against the local and federal government. The federal government changed their tune completely, and the guy in charge of the COVID response now is saying that it's false, that the federal government did not recommend not using ivermectin back in 2020. They're now saying, well, there might have been evidence that could have motivated the use of ivermectin. So they're changing their tune, and it's it's just very weird to see how easily they have politicized scientific platforms and done so with very little regard to actual public health concerns. It's what matters. Yeah. And nobody is saying, we have this evidence that ivermectin worked, so let's continue the program. Yeah. They're just trying to save face and put it behind them. Now they're saying like our main objective is vaccination, which, okay, yeah. that's it should be. But it's funny also what you say about the politics, because you said it was dicey to have an ivermectin expert from Argentina on the committee. But of course, American science policy has our pharmaceutical companies that were making the vaccines are all wrapped up in policy. We've got people all over TV from big pharma who are in and out of the White House. And we've decided that we're going to corporatize a lot of our medical research and R&D. Mm -hmm. And it's completely true. I don't think big pharma wants to kill off citizens of Mexico you know, to make a little bit of money on one drug instead of another drug. Like, that's not how it works. Well, it's not that I put it past them in terms of the morality. It just is not how it works. Yeah. <laughs> but people say, when people try to smear me, they say, oh, you work at the University of Maryland. Maryland gets research money from the FDA. The FDA is giving money to Maryland. And, you, and so obviously, like, you're in the tank for big pharma, which I'm part of that system. Like, it's not crazy. Like, if I say, but the FDA says we shouldn't be using ivermectin, but you're part of the government and the government is saying, so yes, there's no pure science positionality. There's science evidence and so on, but there's no one whose hands are unimplicated, I guess. That, that also speaks to the issue of transparency in a sense, because I think that one of the key problems with this is one, the expectation that people have that the government has to be perfect. I mean, governments screw up every single day, everything they touch, they screw up in some way fundamentally. 
And the other one is that the problem was transparency. There hasn't been transparency around the original discussions about how to use ivermectin. It might have motivated actual clinical trials, which would have been useful rather than this weird intervention that they conducted. And there also hasn't been transparency about all these other decisions that were then taken to justify these interventions. And that's fundamentally problematic because if there's a source of suspicion of things like the FDA, the CDC, et cetera, et cetera, it's because of the opacity under which relations and decisions are happening. And that's what needs to come to light, all those problems that are hidden by these institutions. One trust problem that came through for me was, you know, how we're using these open paper archives in general. And, you know, I look at that story and I poo-poo it, but I also had a lot of tours in the press. But like when I have, it's been on conference papers and stuff before it passed peer review as well. And I'm wondering if if this is partly a problem of what we're all doing, shopping our findings early and circulating our preprints and being willing to talk to journalists before peer review is done. Are we part of the problem? Well, it's funny you should say that. I mean, obviously, I run this system, so I've come to an opinion on this. I don't want to fetishize peer review. Peer review is very important, but it doesn't just happen at journals before something is published. So if you go to a conference and you present a paper, you are somebody, your paper is accepted. By are somebody, I mean you have tenure, you've, you yourself have been peer reviewed to some degree based on your previous work. Someone else accepted that. I think um, the preprints during the pandemic, there have been tens of thousands of preprints and they're mostly on bioarchive and medarchive. And they have unquestionably accelerated science in good ways. Some of them have been bad, but, and it's hard to say what the net effect is because we don't have the counterfactual. But one thing that has happened is it's the important ones that rise to the top. So researchers of all kinds need to communicate with each other in a way not walled off from the public, but in ways the public doesn't care about. So a lot of this just goes below the surface. It's we're exchanging methods and papers and results, and nobody cares outside of 10 people. And that's great. And that's part of the function. And once in a while, something rises to the top and the New York Times wants to run a story about it. And the good journalists in this, what they do when that happens is they pick up the phone. And so you may have gotten right. these calls, and I have too, where I'm a journalist, I've got this preprint here that has this finding, and now, and they can do like the best peer review you've seen because people want to get quoted in the New York Times. I'll drop everything <laughs> and spend an hour reading a preprint so I can get quoted in the New York Times. And of course, I'm like the world's greatest peer reviewer. So if you can get my attention, that's great. I just mean like, like they'll say like, here's an important preprint, and here are the top five scientists in this area and what they think about it. Like that could be right. great. Yeah. I don't know if you remember this story from about June or July 2020 that said, if the U.S. had locked down two weeks earlier, we could have saved 50,000 cases or 5,000 lives or something like that. That was a preprint and it has held up. But what they did when they published it was they called a bunch of other scientists and there've been some disasters. But I think that the implication of your question, Joe, is, and I don't know if you meant this, but should we hold back stuff because of the possible negative side? And I do think mistakes matter. You know, if you're saying, I think drinking bleach might be a good idea, that right. you don't want to share publicly, if, especially if there's a movement to drink bleach and people will die tomorrow if you post that. But I think right. holding our stuff back it probably hurts us more than it helps us. But I admit it's an empirical question. GP, any thoughts on that? I, mean, I think that part of the, the problem 
is the fact that the genres of science can be weaponized. So you can make things look scientific. And for someone who is outside of the community and doesn't understand that knowledge is always incredibly precarious and that that is our craft. I mean, we're producing things that are there to be broken. They get confused and they don't understand that all the claims, particularly those that haven't been reviewed and discussed within the relevant communities, are just informed opinions which need to be taken with a grain of salt. And if it's something trivial, like the colors that make you happy inside a, an office, then that's fine. I mean, there's no lives at stake. But if it's something about health interventions or things where human lives are on the line, then those have to be really examined with more care. That's not necessarily something that the scientific community needs to do, but it's maybe a failure in how we communicate the scientific process to non-scientific audiences. So for instance, the fact that people were downloading a medical paper from a social science archive should have been a red alert. Why isn't this published in a peer-reviewed journal if it's reporting 76% reductions in hospitalizations? That's really where I think the failure is. It's not in the preprint world. It's not in how preprints have accelerated science in very sort of fundamental ways and made it more open and more international, et cetera, et cetera. It's really in how it's weaponized outside of these communities. And that's really the problematic thing with this particular case. It was weaponized on purpose. I mean, in my fields that I'm part of, preprints can sometimes just look like a draft and they sometimes can be formatted so they look very much like what might appear in a journal. I'm, I'm curious to know what version of that this was. So it didn't say. On Search Archive, we call them papers. Some are preprints, some are postprints, some are working papers, some are final versions. We also have versioning as a, mm. I'm using that as a verb. So upload the paper, then you upload a new version and eventually you upload maybe a final version. That's air quotes around final. Um, so we don't require that you disclose that. So one of the suggestions for us was, should we say more explicitly the peer review status of different work? So med archive and bioarchive, and I'm not surprised it was rejected there if that is true. One of the things they do is they don't accept work that has already been accepted for a journal. They only accept things that are pre-prints. And they have a big disclaimer on their homepage that says everything on here has not been peer reviewed. Yeah. And so I think that's mostly good. It's a little bit bad when that exact same article word for word is accepted and peer reviewed and published in a journal. And it's still sitting on bioarchive with a big disclaimer on it, even though not a word has changed. It's a little bit like JP says, we yeah. need to communicate about this. But yeah. they didn't lie, but they took advantage of the ambiguity of our platform. I have a question. Was the submission single spaced yeah. with graphical yeah. elements and design elements in the document? No, it, it was eight and a half by 11 with a single column. It wasn't okay. like formatted into two columns. It was, okay. but they also had a press conference. They showed their slides on Zoom press conference. I mean, they presented it as yeah. like finished work. Right. You know, that's the problem because I love the concept of social archive. And in the best case scenario, it's a place where professional researchers can show each other our work and we can trade notes and get things into shape to be shipped out. Like that's how it's supposed to work. I'm convinced that you're about the argument that it's really the journalists who are going into a discussion and taking it out as a final answer and presenting it as such. And I don't even know how much we should be reacting to that because we'd be destroying an asset that we have for someone else's misuse of it. It is tricky. 
one thing that, so MedIcarve and BioArchive also don't accept review articles or theory articles, only specific empirical. So you know how the public is always upset, like first they said chocolate was good for you. Now they say it's yeah. bad for you. So yeah. science is terrible. You know, they can't make up their minds. And MedArchive and BioArchive actually play into that because they'll publish eat both of those chocolate papers, but they won't publish the review paper that says there've been 50 studies of chocolate and yeah. this is the answer. Right. And so those papers don't get accelerated through the preprint system as well. And so you do get this ping pong bouncing around thing if you follow it like too myopically. So I agree, but those are important for scientists to share with each other. I mean, we got the genetic code of the virus in January, 2020, but people were sharing their work. It's obviously yeah. vital. It's also like scientists aren't necessarily clairvoyant tellers of truth or dirty liars. They're kind of like engineers or whatever who live down the street talking about issues of professional concern. And sometimes there's like a fetishization of us and what we're yeah. doing, I think, that makes that the problem. Like, we're not that. We're not that smart. <laughs> <laughs> All right. This is a great discussion. You guys never disappoint. I, I, I was happy just to have the excuse to meet with you guys. Before we go, though, you want to just tell us a little bit about what you're working on? Anything new? Anything coming down the pipe that you want people to know about? Start with JP. Gosh, well... Besides the book, we'll talk about so the book I, I and then what the, else. There's a book on academics and how they're evaluated and how that changes the type of scholarship they do. And mm -hmm. it's coming out later this year. But my new big project is on how funding models and budget models in American universities reshape disciplines and the hierarchies of knowledge. Oh, nice. By the way, there's a great talk. He gave a great talk at the Queens College uh, workshop, and it's on YouTube Live. So if you want to see a, an early version presentation, or I guess you can go visit JP's site. JP, do you have a site? Yeah, there's a site. It's my last name, which is Pardo Guerra, or Brown War, as, as the transliteration is, .org. All right. And Philip, what are you working on? I've been, um, I've done some COVID type research, like on uh, birth rates and marriage and divorce. I looked at some injury data, like high heel shoe related injuries during the pandemic, like stuff that just interested me, which fell a lot fewer people got injured by wearing high heels in the last couple of years. <laughs> it's available on Med Archive. If you want to uh, I'm writing a book called Citizen Scholar, which is about being a whole public intellectual thing, about doing your research in the public eye and doing your public eye-ness in light of your research. So I'm supposed to finish it in about in the next six months or so, and I have a fighting chance. So. Well, I hope both of you will come on to talk about it. I'm a fan of both of your work, so please come on when it's ready. And Jason, thank you for coming. It's awesome to have my colleague from English join us here in the social department. Yeah, I mean, this could not have been more fascinating. It was good use of my time, for sure. <laughs> All right. You've been listening to the Annex of Sociology podcast. A special thank you to our guests, Philip Cohn from the University of Maryland College Park and J.P. Pardo Guerra from the University of California, San Diego. We're on the web, theannexpodcast.com, on Twitter, at Socianix, and on Facebook, the Annex Sociology podcast. The Annex is a production of the Queen's Podcast Lab. For more information, visit queenspodcastlab.org. Our producers on this episode are Oscar Rosario and Amy Meneses. Music is by Lena Orsa. On behalf of my co-host, Jason Tuga, I'm Joe Cohen. Thanks for listening.